Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Canberra producer Clonakilla will not make wine from the 2020 vintage due to Australian wildfires. Latest news on tariffs. The US confirms 25% tariffs on EU wines, but rules out 100% tariffs. In Bordeaux, the Cru Bourgeois classification is redesigned to promote growth in the category. And as ever, our Wine of the Week. So now for our week in wine, which has actually been two weeks in wine. And wow, they've been jam-packed. Yes, they have. It's been very action-packed. Lots of things going on. Um, I got back from France last Saturday after an exhausting week of blind tastings to prepare for the MW exam in June. They started at 8 a.m. every morning when there was no daylight, which I've never experienced in tasting wine before. It's true. We were WhatsApping at 11 p.m. my time, and I couldn't believe that you were awake. Awake and very active, no no less. Uh, But then when I got back on Saturday night, there wasn't much time to rest because on Sunday morning, I picked up Jancis Robinson and her husband Nick from the airport in San Francisco to chauffeur them around wineries in Napa and Sonoma. So a great experience to meet and to learn from one of the leading wine authorities in the world. And we had some great tastings too throughout the week uh, with Joel Peterson and his son Morgan to learn all about the heritage of California. So Joel was the one who established Ravenswood and really helped kind of save Old Vine Zinfandel and Morgan is continuing in his footsteps. And then Rory Williams, who's the vineyard manager of Frog's Leap, where they have planted something not associated with Napa Old Vine Riesling, as well as other varieties. And as mentioned in our Wine of the Week later on, we learnt all about trends in Napa viticulture from Steve Mathiason. And we even got to visit a cult winery, Colgan, whose wines retail for $650 a bottle. So a broad taste of everything that's going on in Northern California right now. So I actually had the privilege of putting together said itinerary, uh, working with the California Wine Institute to host Jancis here for the week. And we did try to do a balance of the classic but then also kind of new trends and of course Jancis had specific instructions on where she wanted to go as well and all this was around uh, Premier Napa Valley a big uh, trade auction that happens every year with the Napa Valley Vintners and another event called Export 2020 uh, which was hosted by the California Wine Institute and we've talked about on the pod before And it was a very successful event. So Jancis actually keynoted with Elaine Chacon-Brown to kind of give an overview of global trends and what people are really looking for in California wine in global export markets. Then there was the keynote panel uh, moderated by Andrew Catchpole, editor at Harper's Wine and Spirit in the UK. And the panel consisted of experts in different markets, including Canada, Sweden, the UK, and Japan. It was a very good uh, presentation by all of those um, experts in their fields. I particularly enjoyed the UK presentation, which is by Troy Christensen of Anotri and Co. Um, and he basically concluded that it's very difficult to say anything positive about the UK right now, and that he hadn't really tried. So he half apologised, but then got kind of bleak outlook on what's happening in the UK for the wine industry right now. But um, overall, they were quite positive about California and the different markets that California wine can get into. 
And the rest of the day were breakout sessions and kind of focusing in on each market and giving California producers the tools they need to approach export or kind of hone their approach in specific market. Yeah, and sustainability was one of the big key themes that um, these people were emphasizing that to get into markets and kind of really um, get customers' attentions talking about sustainability and environmentally friendly practices. And as Jancis said, not only have these sustainable practices, but also communicate it to these different markets, which she said California could improve upon. So all in all, a very busy, busy and active week and learning lots about California wine and also how it's perceived around the world. Fascinating. Great for your MW studies, I imagine. Yes, I'm just grateful learning about wine. And now on with the news. In Australia, leading Canberra producer Clonakilla this week announced that they would not be producing any wine from the 2020 vintage due to smoke taint, a decision made before the harvest is even complete. Tim Kirk, chief winemaker, stated that after meeting with all of their grape sources, they had decided that the level of smoke taint caused by the wildfires that have raked havoc on Australia was too high to be able to make wine. He stressed, however, that this is a one-off decision and that there was still plenty of wine from the 2018 and 2019 vintages to buy and enjoy. Tim Kirk described this as a painful decision, and we're sure it was, but there's no point putting damaged wines into the market, which would only hurt the long-term reputation of the winery. As far as we're aware, Clonakilla are the only major Australian winery to rule out making any wine at all from the 2020 harvest, but we do expect a much lower crop overall and levels of production in many regions. Yes, I support this decision as well because I won't name names, but in a seminar actually last year, uh, came across a California wine producer that had bottled uh, wine that was actually affected by smoke taint. And when we tasted the wine in the seminar, it was very noticeable and really upsetting because it could leave a lasting impression in tasters' minds about those brands. Yes, and this week I did taste some uh, 2017 Napa wines. And so the issue of uh, the fires in in that year and how they affected the wines was a a key one that the producers really had to work around to make sure that the wines were completely clean and pure and of the highest uh, highest standard possible. But we want to continue to support our Australian colleagues, of course. So how can we do that? Drink more Australian wine. The U.S. Trade Representative this week confirmed the 25% tariffs on certain EU wines, whiskey and liqueurs, which were implemented in October of last year. However, after receiving 26,000 comments from the deeply concerned drinks industry, the proposed 100% tariffs discussed in December will not be introduced, at least not until the next review in 180 days' time. Although it's good news that the 100% tariffs will not be implemented, the 25% tariffs are still hurting both European and US businesses. The Scotch industry predicted losses of £100 million due to the fall in exports, while the US wine industry forecast 36,000 job losses and a hit to the US economy of $5.3 billion. Retaliatory tariffs brought in by the EU on US whiskey has also seen the category hit hard, with a decline in exports of 16%. Well, this dispute isn't going away. The EU is expected to increase tariffs on U.S. whiskey to 50% next year. 
And this, all this back and forth creates quite a bit of uncertainty, with businesses not being able to plan for the future as they don't know the costs of importing and selling wine and other drinks. I think we would all like to see a more mature attitude to tariffs and a deeper understanding of the consequences on those who work in the industry, but unfortunately the global trend of protectionism is unlikely to change anytime soon. It's also worth noting that consumption of wine in the US is declining, as recently reported on the pod, and the high-volume harvests of 2018 and 2019 in California have seen supply exceed demand. Punitive tariffs on European wine make it harder for retailers to expand the market and may see consumers move to other drink, ca- drink categories. The Cru Bourgeois classification in Bordeaux is constantly undergoing change, as the authorities try to create a system that successfully promotes the region's mid-priced wines. This week, a new official Cru Bourgeois classification was unveiled with a more long-term approach. Rather than ranking the producers each year, now the Cru Bourgeois classification will last five years, allowing producers to factor their ranking into their marketing approach. 249 chateaux are included in the classification, divided into Cru Bourgeois, Cru Bourgeois Supérieur, and Cru Bourgeois Exceptionnel, of which there are just 14. The classification will be next reviewed in 2022. It may seem that the last thing that Bordeaux needs is more classifications and more terms, but at the same time, Bordeaux does need to compete in the $20 to $30 market in order to introduce consumers to the region who aren't yet ready or prepared to spend $100 or more. And I keep hearing and know from experience that that's where you can find the real value in Bordeaux is at that price point. So it's just about making a classification that's clear enough that is going to entice consumers when it's sitting on the shelf. And this new classification seems to bring more certainty for producers and, and consumers as the producers are awarded their ranking for five years. And it also brings a tier to the system rather than a catch-all term, which will, will reward the best producers who get uh, ranked the Cru, Cru Bourgeois Exceptionnel. So hopefully this new classification is successful and brings some stability, as the Cru Bourgeois term has been reworked countless times in the past. So consumers want to know what these terms mean and that they have some long-term meaning, I think. Well, we'll see if consumers bite on this new classification. It seems that the first growth classification system is, is viewed as archaic and not really relevant in, you know, among today's consumers. So I don't know if another classification is the key, but maybe it is. We'll find out. Yeah, and I was just recently in Bordeaux, and then I was teaching a diploma today, and there were students were asking me, I was like, what about all the new Spanish and Portuguese grape varieties they're going to plant there? Are they really excited about that? And I was like, no, no one is talking about it at all. So Bordeaux is still quite conservative and slow in change, which um, doesn't appeal to all consumers. As part of the wine tour this week with Jancis Robinson, I organized the visit uh, to Steve Mathiason and his wife Jill at their home in Napa, uh, where they have some experimental plantings. So Steve is an experienced and esteemed viticulturist, uh, working with many properties across Napa and encouraging growers and winemakers to be as sustainable and eco-friendly as possible, uh, which is why thought this would be a great visit for Jancis since she's definitely got an interest in sustainability. 
Steve and Jill also make their own wine, which includes familiar varieties such as Chardonnay, Cabernet Franc, and Cabernet Sauvignon, as well as some more esoteric varieties planted after an inspirational visit to Friuli in northeast Italy. The Mathiasins are well known in Napa for their skin contact Ribola Gialla, which has prompted other small producers to follow suit. And another Friuli variety that they work with is Rufosco. I was very surprised to see this on the list of wines that they sent over that they were going to taste with Jancis, and you actually got to taste this as well, right, Matthew? Yeah, the first time I had tasted a Californian version of Rufosco. Um, it's a complex and sometimes confusing family of grape varieties. The version the Mathiasins have planted is Rufosco Nostrano, which is known for a spicy, fruity character and acidity and silky, refined tannins. And apparently, according to Steve... It's a difficult variety to work with in the heat of California, and he's actually quite frustrated working with it. He found it quite hard and regretted planting it, but the results are well worth it, as I enjoyed this wine greatly, and I think Chances Robinson did too. The 2017 has a really great structure with fine, grainy tannins, lively acidity and nice fruitiness, and a smoky, spicy character. So it's very classically Rufosco, despite all those difficulties in the vineyard. So I got to see this wine on the wine list, but I didn't get to actually taste it. So when am I going to get a chance? Well, it's tricky because it is a small production wine, which they mainly make uh, for their wine club, though that is a good reason as any to join. Uh, But hopefully um, Steve will continue to work with the grape and uh, continue to produce wine from it. So you get to try it. And price point is $49. So I don't know if that's with or without the wine club discount, but it's a pricey Rufosco, but I... Sounds like it's well worth it. Yeah, sometimes you have to pay for all that hard work in the vineyard. Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gone. Join us next week for another Wind Up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us. Especially if the reviews are positive. That's right. See you next week. Cheerio! Cheerio!